Geek Top 5, Season 5. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is so exciting. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we are back for another episode, and no, it isn't another one of Jesse and Graham shouting at each other about the Borg, although I guess that could add up to quite a few of our episodes, couldn't it? Uh, but no, we've brought in some special guests to bring us, uh, I guess, something equally horrifying, maybe more horrifying, uh, depends on how you look at it. Graham, do you want to describe for us what's going on here today? This week, we have two experts in the horror genre joining us. First off, we've got Derek Fisher, a writer and college professor who has been studying horror in some form or another for many years. Welcome to the show, Derek. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I appreciate you calling me an expert on horror. The uh, guest you're about to introduce is probably about a thousand times more of an expert than me, but I'll take it. Our other guest this week is the very accomplished managing editor of Fangoria Magazine, the uh, writer for various websites about film and other pop culture uh, topics. We have Ariel Fisher. Hi, thank you for having me too. It's nice to be here. (laughs) Still very weird to also be called an expert, but it's, yeah, I guess I have to stop fighting that one. So, brother-sister duo and clearly Canadian to boot, because everyone is being super modest about their bona fides. Uh, The fact of the matter is, I mean, before we jump directly into the lists, I think it's worth talking about, like, this, uh, you know, you guys didn't just recently get into this, right? This horror thing isn't exactly a a new thing for you two. No, Uh, no, no. I I got into it uh, three weeks ago. <laughs> I was this isn't uh, new at all. Surfing my <laughs> yeah. local no wonder you're an expert YouTube channel and uh, came across an ad for <laughs> McDonald's. Brother, um, no, Ariel and I have <laughs> been into horror for a long time. Uh, it was ne- like I, with Ariel because she does horror for work very directly. It's I think it's a bit more formal. We've both always just been fans of the genre for whatever reason. Um, but I think that the connection that we both built through horror probably comes mostly from the Toronto International Film Festival in that from like a pretty early age we were attending screenings in the Midnight Madness category which is the Toronto International Film Festival's not not quite not horror exclusively but it's their more like extreme film series their more extreme uh, category that they that they host every genre year. specific yeah yeah um, and it's like a wild ride being at Midnight Madness. It's a huge, in the Ryerson Theater, twelve hundred people, all usually sold out. Uh, sometimes they put you know big big pictures, right? George Romero, Dawn of the Dead, things like that. Uh, Takashi Miike is like a regular, you know, mainstay at TIFF. He's got a film in Midnight Madness every year. There's also like very under the radar, like super super sleeper hits or films that you might see at TIFF and never hear of again. Uh, stuff from all over the world. Uh, and I think Ariel and I were just always, you know, into the novelty of that. And then once you go to a couple of Midnight Madness screenings and you see what that audience is like, uh, you get hooked fast. Uh, it's the most raucous audience for any kind of film you could hope to see in a theater in the city. I think I think it beats the hell out of like Rocky Horror or Sound of Music. <laughs> I think it's the best film viewing experience you can have. It's it's up there for sure, but our 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 love of horror, respectively, it definitely predates TIFF. It just TIFF was kind of this really great nexus for us to both kind of 
come together on that. Like Derek had always watched horror movies. That's actually a lot of my love of horror stemmed from listening to him watching horror because he's four years older than me. And like he would get to watch things like um, he would get to watch a bunch of different horror movies and I wasn't allowed to. So like I would always be envious of what he got to watch that I was too little for. So it was always kind of this desire of emulation kind of thing. And and he watched you watched a lot of stuff young, Derek. Like you watched. I remember when you watched Carrie and you were like eight or nine. Goddamn right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I feel like I'm getting some stark parenting lessons here, too. Hey, yeah. I mean, he he actually showed me natural born killers when I was seven because he didn't think to tell me not to watch it. I made the mistake of telling our parents that I watched it because we had one of those like illegal pay-per-view boxes. And no, it was legal. It was Bubby and Zetas. Whatever. They were in. It was semi-legal. It was like, you know, there's some cables that were bought at a store that got plugged into it. But I I would watch all the R-rated movies because, you know, my parents were whatever at work or something. I'd get home from school. And uh, yeah, I remember Natural Born Killers was like one of the first really violent movies I saw. I was a really little kid. Um, and remember kind of feeling like I wasn't sure if I was traumatized by it, by it or like completely and utterly in love with it or both. Uh, but it's not really a horror film, but it was, you know, we, we used to get access to these things we weren't supposed mm-hmm. to be, right? This forbidden kind of content thing. And that was that definitely stoked the flames of the what, what became you know, our love for horror. And they never found out that I watched it until a few years ago. And like, we're talking like five years ago, maybe. And my mom was pissed, <laughs> like retroactively pissed. And she didn't notice that your career sort of went in a specific direction. Well, there's a lot of reasons why it went that way. <laughs> this is the least of them. Well, hit us. What's the what's the very short version and the things that you rose through the ranks through to get to where you are today? Well, um, at least from a writing standpoint, I... I actually started writing when I was at, well, technically I started writing when I was in high school, but that was a lot of really maudlin poetry that I wasn't very proud of. Um, And that was actually also because of Derek, because he had been participating in these high school uh, writing competitions that he continued to win. And one of the prizes uh, of that was that you got published in this book. Um, So I did that. And then I kind of put it off for a long time. I won once I got third place. So I did get published. And then I just put it off because I kept thinking, no, this is Derek's thing. I'm not I'm not the writer. He's the writer. So that's his thing. I can't do that. And when I was in university, my love of movies had always kind of been a thing to the point where, like, I brought all of my DVDs with me to university and my roommates always called me Blockbuster because they could get <laughs> pretty much anything they wanted. I had such a big collection. And um, so they kept asking me, like, some of my friends would pressure me and be like, why don't you go and write for, I went to McMaster. Why don't you go and write for Andy, the McMaster Silhouettes art magazine? It's like, I don't know. Writing's my brother's thing. I shouldn't be doing this. It's not for me. Talk myself out of things repeatedly. And then I was talking to my guidance counselor in my last year. And I was telling her how like, well, I've never done this. And I guess I've missed my chance. And she's like, no, you still have a year left. Like it was the beginning of my fourth year. She's like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to stop second guessing yourself. Once you leave here, you're going to go and you're going to sign up to be a volunteer writer. Worst thing that happens is they tell you no. And if they don't, then you're going to start doing what you wanted to do, which is writing about movies. And they did. And my editor and I actually bonded over a conversation of his inability to and my ability to finish watching Martyrs in one sitting. And... (laughs) 
Uh, and then I started writing for them. And from there, it just kind of spiraled. I started doing writing for a lot of other um, outlets for free, as is, you know, the nature of the job. And I started doing my own stuff. I had a blog and progressively over time, like my first paid gig was with Rue Morgue. Uh, and then it, from there, the horror thing kind of became the norm, whereas before it was also like I dabbled in everything. I, I did comedies, rom uh, romantic comedies, foreign film, documentaries. I love like the Hot Docs Film Festival in Toronto is fantastic. But yeah, and then it just kind of progressed. And up until a month or so ago, I was also the editor for Shutter's weekly newsletter, The Bite, which is now on hiatus. And I left that to come and be an, a news editor at Slash Film and the managing editor at Fangoria Magazine, which is if you'd if you told that to, to, you know, university me, she would have laughed in your face and gone, you're lying. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's a, quite the trajectory. It's a lot of work. It's, 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 and that is very much the condensed version. And that was not that short. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we get into the list? And uh, I, I don't know if there's a, a simpler way to title it, but I think it's sort of formative horror movie experiences for both of you. And we're going to go back and forth in our, our not quite copyrighted, not quite uh, trademarked dueling list style. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, and the way the way that I've like thought about the you know our approach to this kind of list is is that you know not each entry is formative in a in the same kind of way, right? Like some are formative in the kind of a predictable way, helped shape our love of the genre, or you know early experiences with fear from a film or, or some piece of media. But some of them are you know a bit silly and funny or what. Like I I feel like each entry of mine is like oh, uh, add something different to the. I don't know, compendium of me and horror. So if you ever end up on an A and D biography, these would be exactly. like the different chapter headings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. we can. Do it. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you start us off, Derek? What's your number five? Okay. So my number five has to do with, uh, I guess you could call them the B horror genre. So <laughs> uh, there was a time, I think we were in high school where my core group of friends became really obsessed with, really sh like shitty poorly made splatter kind of b-horror stuff because we were just really into the idea that a film could be made with such poor quality effects and such terrible story writing and yet have such an audience for it and be compelling in its own right and we were just kind of always on the hunt for the most b the most ridiculous stuff uh and you know this it started out with Things like the Evil Dead films, but the sorry, I, maybe I should tell you my entry here. I don't know if this is how it works, but the actual film that I'm going to talk about for number five is Peter Jackson's Bad Taste. So Peter Jackson, the guy who made he made these couple of movies, these little movies called Lord of the Rings, um, little Wingnut Productions. But uh, so what he's really known for, what he's really known <laughs> for, were these three kind of splattery B films way back when, made in New Zealand. Uh, which bad taste, meet the feebles, and brain dead, which was also known as dead alive in North America. Yeah, and it was. We, me, and my crew, and we were seventeen. You're, you know, call it a crew. Um, as we were kind of getting into all this B horror stuff, we heard that they were making a Lord of the Rings film. It got announced, and you know, we were all super stoked. We love Lord of the Rings. And then was someone in the group, I think Jeff, 
had heard that this guy who made Lord of the Rings had also made a couple of uh, B horror films, so it worked perfectly with the you know this thing that we were into. We we had you know this is all like on VHS. We like ordered them. One of them came from like Sri Lanka or something. Like they it, it, back then it was like hard to find stuff. And so we got these three VHSs and it was like a whole group. It was like six of us and we set it all up in the basement and we're going to watch them all one after another. And we started with Bad Taste. And I had not seen a B-horror movie of this kind of quality until I laid eyes on Bad Taste. So for those of you in the audience that haven't seen Peter Jackson's true masterpieces, Bad Taste is a film that was made over the course of four years with like a shitty rolling camera filmed in like the you know hills in New Zealand for I think $3.57, that was the budget. And uh, he, he just had his friends do the filming with him on their weekends when they were off work. And the premise of the film is these aliens come to Earth because they've got a fast food chain over in their alien planet and they need to collect some human meat so they can harvest and put it into their alien burgers. And uh, so they, they come to New Zealand to do that. What a better place for alien burgers than New Zealand. But uh, what they didn't know was that there were these four kind of amateur, sort of like Dwight in the office, like a volunteer sheriff. There were these four guys in this New Zealand town, the main one character coincidentally named Derek, played by Peter Jackson, uh, and they weren't having any of it. They aren't letting some alien zombie fucks ruin their day. So what ensues is this just hilarious comedy. It really is a comedy. Uh, and the, the, like, the effects are so ridiculous. There's a scene where Derek, the main guy, Peter Jackson, right, falls off a cliff and as he lands, you can see like a swash of fake blood fly in from the side. Like someone was clearly holding a bucket. He lands and then, you know, he lands kind of off screen and then blood flies sort of across where he lands. Like very silly amateur stuff like that. But it just had, there's this something endearing about the film that you just love it for how bad it is, uh, which I guess is, I think that's kind of the point of B-horror. And it, it's not even like something like The Room, where it's like genuinely awful. And it's the awfulness itself that makes it enjoyable. It's not that. Like, it's too self-aware for that. The Room doesn't, you know, apparently didn't know that it was bad. Like, uh, Tommy Wiseau didn't know he was making a bad film. But uh, these guys, I think they knew what they were doing and they just played into it as hard as they could. It's a ridiculous film, Bad Taste. Like, if you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. It's so funny and so stupid and filled with splatter and blood and, like, really great Kiwi accents. Like, everything is, like, cranked. <laughs> the New Zealand dial is cranked to 99 the whole time. Um, so, you know, this, this was formative in that I learned that horror isn't always horror. Sometimes it's comedy uh, and sometimes it's intentional. And sometimes that actually makes for a much more enjoyable viewing experience than anything else you could hope to see in a horror. Man, that was beautiful in a way. (laughs) (laughs) You know how they made the, uh, you know how they made the alien heads, right? I can't remember. Remind me. He made them in his parents' oven. Because he was uh, like they, they he's he, Jared, Derek's not kidding when he says that they had like no budget. They d- and they literally just filmed it on their weekends because it was the only time they had off. I think the and official it took them budget, that long. The official budget was something like twenty five thousand dollars, which is it, yeah nothing. Yeah, and that was over the course of a few years of them doing it like on their off weekends and when they had the time and when life didn't get in the way and he was still living at home. So like he would, he went over to his parents' house and to make all of these prosthetics for the aliens, you had to cure them in an oven, but they didn't have the type of oven that you could use for something like that. So he just had to use his parents' oven. 
because that's what was available. And because it wasn't tall enough to fit the heads, the heads were initially supposed to just go straight up. But because of the angle that they had to go into the oven at, that's why they have that backwards slant was because that was where the, that was where their heads hit the, uh, hit the, the top of the oven. Cause that's the only room that they had. Yeah, so somebody watched that and said, this is the guy, this is, this, the, guy. This is the guy to take Tolkien yeah. to the next level. Technically it was heavenly creatures that got him the gig. Okay. I digress. Don't ruin it. Much Don't later. ruin it, Ariel. No, but I love it. Sorry. <laughs> does so? Does seeing something like that does that inspire you at all to to do your own horror creations? Like that, if this guy can pull this off on such a limited budget and like abilities, maybe I can do something similar. I mean, it, it inspires me to like see what my brain feels like. Like if I could touch the squishy part, like he does in the film. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I, I think it's sure they're, they're, that lesson is always, you know, we hear these kinds of stories all the time, right? Amateur filmmaker or whatever, who, who started with virtually nothing and then made it to, you know, the biggest heights in their field. And those kind of stories are always inspiring. Um, but, uh, the only thing that beats just pure raw inspiration is like, you know, a touch of B, a touch of a blood splatter. Gotcha. So I think that, uh, that adds to the narrative a bit because it's just so goddamn silly. Gotcha. It's a zero to hero story with a side helping of just <laughs> gore of, of B gore and ham- alien hamburgers, mm-hmm. right? And clearly uh, very influential to a fourteen-year-old boy. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's bounce over then. Let's bounce over to you, Ariel. What's uh, what's your number five? I guess my I guess where I'm going to start my number five. These are I'm I'm so averse to ranking lists. I'm such a fucking snob. <laughs> but sorry. <laughs> Just, Welcome will, to Geek Top Five. <laughs> <laughs> I will start with an early memory. Uh, I'll start in chronological order. Why not? And I actually almost gave this away earlier when we were talking. I was going to say this, but I was like, no, wait, that's one of your points. Um, so one of my most formative experiences with horror is listening to Derek watch jaws um and it would go on to become one of my all-time favorite movies and one of my number one comfort movies oddly enough it's actually i i can i for the last decade or so i have had a poster of like a jaws poster above my desk it's just become this thing and i didn't have it for a while since being stuck in the states during the pandemic so now i have one and it's like everything's right with the world but uh no, when I was a little kid, again, because I was I was four years younger than Derek and I he was at an age where he could start watching scary movies and he could start watching like Carrie or Jaws or Poltergeist. And I was like four or five. So I was still too young for that stuff, like by a lot. So I would be in the other room with like alternating parents. So my mom and my dad would kind of swap out in like the dining room or in the kitchen and they'd be like doing a puzzle with me or something, just keeping me occupied, keeping me distracted while he got to watch the cool stuff. And so I remember it's quite a commitment to, for for your son to watch a horror movie uninterrupted. Oh, yeah. And like not swapping out the whole time, like they would just kind of like come and go. It wasn't like an organized, orchestrated, like mass. We're not talking like Mission Impossible with kids where, you know, it's more it's more like just, okay. this is just too much for her. Just make sure she's like doing something else. And and like that was fine and that was fun. But I always wanted to see what the things were that were making the loud noises. I wanted to know what was making the awful, gruesome sounds and like why are, you know, why is my mom like 
wincing while this guy is screaming and it sounds like something's being eaten. And so I like, I heard Quint get eaten by Bruce before I ever saw it. And that became this big moment for me. Like it, people have asked me in the past and, and I, it just comes up now with like, you know, you, people ask what, what's your earliest memory of seeing a movie? Bruce, and I, my, Bruce, by the way, is of course the yeah. guy in the film who says, Oh, what? When Richard no. says tiger shark. That's Bruce. No, no. Bruce's Bruce's jaws, right? That's yes. Bruce's Bruce, Bruce is the Bruce, Bruce is what they named the animatronic shark that was too ugly to be used the way Spielberg originally wanted to use it. So that's why he's barely seen in the movie. And when he is, he's largely just quick shots because the Bruce. animatronic looked bad. Eh, he's he's got some body shaming issues. <laughs> but that's a whole like that's like that's one of those like remarkable movie stories, right? Like that's what made exactly. Jaws what it was. So Yeah. And it's one of my favorite things about that movie as well is just the idea that it's it was one of it was one of Steven Spielberg's like earlier films and it was it it invented the it coined the term the blockbuster for a reason and it changed everything. And on top of that, it set this whole new standard out of the need to work around dysfunction. Like early on in his career, you had all of these amazing you you had stuff like Bruce and like Jaws where he had to, you know, necessity came, became the mother of invention and he had to find ways to work around things and to make things work. So listening to Jaws through the door. Yes. Uh, Not even through the door in the other room, but yeah. Obviously stuck with you. Curiosity. Was there payoff when you finally got to see it for the first time? Yeah. Oh, for sure. But it wasn't um, it wasn't that it was horrifying. That's the weird part about my Jaws experience was that I guess I, I associated it with looking up to my brother and being comforted by my parents. So it's now one of those movies that I put on like to fall asleep to. And even at the time when I first saw it, it didn't scare me as much as it was just like, oh, that's what was happening. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> like now I could associate it with something. All right. Treasured family memories. Yeah. <laughs> Are your parents into the genre? Our mom loves scary movies, particularly ghost stories. One of her absolute favorite movies of all time is Rebecca, the Alfred Hitchcock film. Um, she really likes The Exorcist, but has a hard time watching it just like I do. Dad really likes horror movies. Our dad just has a very strange relationship with movies. But like he loves Silence of the Lambs, which is a horror movie. I don't care what anybody says. And like he hated The Shining for the longest time. And then I was like, give it another shot. And he rewatched it and was like, oh, yeah, that was actually really good. And <laughs> last year he watched all of uh, The Haunting of Hill House with myself and my now husband and uh, loved it. Scared the shit out of him, but he loved it. <laughs> all right. Well, why don't we jump back to Derek for number four on the list? Uh, so for my number four, I am going to be discussing a film that I think Ariel mentioned at some point in the last little bit. It is the film Poltergeist. Now, the reason why I'm talking about Poltergeist, this this entry is kind of like a very specific story. It's actually a two-pronged story, both involving little formative moments for me when I was a kid. And I was uh, quite young at the time. Um, I don't know, maybe let's say 12, 13. So... You know, for those of you who you may remember, Poltergeist, the film about you know, these these ghosts, these poltergeists, whatever you want to call them, they, they're after this little girl, Carol Ann, they're, they take over the house. The most iconic image from the film is the TV being fuzzy. She's sitting in front of a fuzzy TV. 
And it seems that the ghosts in this house are communicating with her through the static of the TV. This is in the early parts of the film. And then they eventually kind of take her and then she's sort of lost in the, I don't know, some metaphysical kind of other dimension within the house. Uh, it's a well-done movie. It was produced by Steven Spielberg, was directed by Toby Hooper, apparently had all kinds of production issues. It also has all kinds of very, very spooky, you know, post-film lore. Several of the actors on the, on the, in the film died not that long after it was filmed, uh, including the girl who played Carol Ann. She was very sick for a long time. And because all these other people involved with the film had died, like not that long after it was made, people kind of thought that the film itself might be haunted. It's one of those films that has like all this lore to it. Um, it's, it's a really good movie. It's a really good horror movie. It's quite scary, even though it's like technically rated PG, I think. That seems low. <laughs> yeah. There's some horrifying stuff in Poltergeist for a PG, like that scene where the guy mm-hmm. hallucinates that, that he's ripping his face off in the washroom. Mm-hmm. I remember that scene like really, really <laughs> grossing me out as a little kid. Um, you know, so whatever, I guess uh, times were different. But my experience with the film is unique in that there, there was a couple things that happened the night that I saw the film and then uh, I think like next week. So I saw the film in, you know, my, the basement of one of my best friends at the time, we were little kids. He had this unfinished, this little unfinished basement that just had this bed down there. And we would sort of sit on the bed and watch TV on, or movies on their old little, you know, 15 inch TV. Uh, and we watched Poltergeist and we watched it together. We were scared shitless. We had a great time. Uh, you know, we stayed up cause we were little kids shooting the shit, whatever, playing video games. And then we both kind of fell asleep at some point in the middle of the night. And so after seeing this horror film that, you know, its most iconic image is a static TV, I woke up at probably three in the morning sitting, you know, and sat up in bed to be faced with a static TV. (laughs) So this was like a nice little scary moment. I was like, I remember for a few seconds there, I really thought that uh, the supernatural had come to life. Like I thought, holy, <laughs> holy shit, that this thing we fear, where the movie you see that scares the bejesus out of you, that you, of course, can't really be real, can it? No, it really can. You know, I, I think a lot of us have had these experiences as kids where you see, you know, a scary film and it sits with you for a while. But let's fast forward. I think it was probably a week or two later. Uh, I was going on a camping trip with this summer camp that I was with. Uh, the, the guy, you know, my friend who I watched Poltergeist with was there on the camping trip. You know, there's this uh, one of the main scenes in the film is the, the little boy, the, the brother of Carol Ann. He's kind of creeped out by the tree outside the window in the, of his bedroom. Kind of looks almost like it has a face in it. And this one night, there's a thunderstorm, and thunder is getting louder and louder. And he's just becoming more terrified of just the image of this tree and the lightning. And then at, this is kind of right when the ghosts sort of t- really take over the house one of the things they do is they cause this tree to come to life in the middle of a thunderstorm and it reaches in through the window, breaks the window and tries to eat this kid. Uh, it's a terrifying scene. So I, I went on this camping trip with like the summer camp where they, they take you portaging into the interior. Uh, they, they teach you how to do for a couple of weeks. They teach you all the lessons about camping. Uh, and then they take you deep into in the woods for a week. You carry the canoe on your back. Right. And you know, we were young, so this was, it was hard work. Um, and that first night, when you've ever camped in the rain, you know, that first night, it was, it was raining all day long. And so you're setting up tents in the rain, which means you're soaked for the duration of the trip. Uh, and the rain went from 
you know, heavier to even heavier to even heavier. And by the time the night came, it was a thunderstorm. And, you know, it was me and like three guys and a ten big guys we were like 13. And like we, you know, we we did the stupid thing where thirteen year olds try to be thirteen year old boys try to be like too cool for their own age. And so someone brought like a bottle of rum. So we were drinking straight rum at thirteen, and we were all disgusted with it. Like we would like straight liquor at that age, but we all had to like pretend. And someone brought like a hustler magazine, so it was like we were passing around pictures of a naked chick. Were you were you actually living a a parody of a horror film? Like what is this? No, this was this was real. This was this. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know these details of the story. I remember the story. I did not know these other parts. If, if I watched it in a horror movie, I kind of, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. This trope, all right, great. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so the boy, we're sitting in the tent pretending to like this rum, like just barely pretending, looking at the Hustler magazine, and the thunder and lightning's getting, the, the thunder's getting louder, lightning's getting brighter, the rain's getting heavier. And I've still got know a fresh memory of culture guys sometimes and i still have the memory of waking up in front of the static tv was you know sort of traumatized i guess a little by this film and the thunder is getting louder and louder and all of a sudden you know our, our conversation is getting quieter because we're all becoming scared and then there's this big boom big flash of lightning big boom all in one second and we all hear it this snap and all of a sudden, a fucking tree lands on us. A tree, like a big tree, like lands on our tent. A piece of branch was poking through the tent right in front of one of the kids. Eye. Like it was like an inch from his eye. We scream. We go absolutely apeshit. We're running out of the tent, freaking out, screaming out like it was chaos. There's, you know, the other tents are set up nearby because it was like a fairly big uh, camp session. And all I can think about is, holy fuck, the tree from Poltergeist came after me <laughs> because I left the TV on. <laughs> After I finished watching the film, like <laughs> as a thirteen-year-old, you, these you know this this these things don't make sense. It must be the horror. It was the horror, and so so that was a, a you know a pretty formative experience for me uh, with with in terms of the relationship between uh, my my own sense of fear, my experience with the film Poltergeist, and having these sort of moments that really uh, you know reflect the the moments in the film. Yeah. No, no. Okay. Lots of good reasons why you guys ended up being fans the way you are. <laughs> uh, I feel almost guilty volleying it back to you, Ariel. What do you got at number four? And does it compete with that? What trauma are you going to tell us about now, Ariel? <laughs> um, actually, <laughs> I laugh, but I'm going to just keep going in chronological order because why not? Um, arachnophobia. Um, the movie. Uh, gave me arachnophobia, the phobia, <laughs> appropriately <laughs> enough. We, appropriate. It really a, a very appropriate phobia. Uh, we were when we were growing up. There was this place that we used to go with our parents. It, like we we weren't a big vacationing family. We didn't really like travel really, but we went to this place called East Winds. And it was a cottage, like a family cottage place in Muskoka that was owned and operated by this family, a husband and wife, and their their grown children kind of came and went. And we went up there the same two weeks every year, or almost the same two weeks every every summer. And we started, it became more regular, partially because it was an affordable vacation that we could take on a regular basis. It was a lovely place. Our father is also a creature of habit, so it was something that he liked, so we had to keep doing. And also, 
we made friends. Like there were other families that went up there at the same time as us. And like Derek and I made friends with like they had kids. So we made friends with them. And two of them were uh, Chris and Emma. They were brother and sister, just like us, uh, only ages reversed. So Emma was about Derek's age and Chris was about mine. So we would hang out with them all the time. And their parents brought a VCR with them and a small TV. And there was a, a convenience store up the road that you could, that also doubled as like a marina, I think. And you could, they had movies that you could rent. So I was about seven years old and we rented Arachnophobia or they had rented it and we just decided to all watch it. I don't exactly remember how it came about. Um, and we're out in Muskoka in the woods, not, and this is, this is, it's not like a totally remote place, but it's like, it's not, we're not portaging exactly, but it's in the woods. So we, we watched this movie and like our parents knew that we were watching it. It's not the type of movie that's like inappropriate for our age range. Although I guess I was a little bit young. I think it's like in the and family section at the movie store. Yeah. Cause it's, I remember seeing it on, on like TV in the afternoons mm-hmm. on, on weekends. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, Jeff Daniels isn't. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, although let's be honest, Jeff Daniels is also in movies where it is not a comedy, but <laughs> technically it is qual it qualifies as like a horror comedy uh, and like a family horror movie, sort of. But um, also still in the days pre PG thirteen, I think I could be wrong though. But we watched it and it traumatized me. And we watched it at night, and then Derek and I had to walk back to our cabin when we were done. And we're walking back in the pitch dark and we're surrounded by bugs because we're in nature. That's where they live. We're in their (laughs) home. And I'm like, oh, God, okay." So I I was freaking out. And I, you know, I thought, no, it's it's fine. It's fine. I'll be fine. And we go to bed and and this cabin that we stayed in, we always stayed in the same one. Uh, The room that Derek and I shared had bunk beds. So I always well, not always, but pretty much always I got the bottom bunk. Which was fine, but I had two incredibly vivid nightmares because of arachnophobia that night, and I still remember exactly what they were. I the the first one that woke me up was I I woke up I, I thought I was awake. I, I guess it was like that weird lucid state between waking and dreaming, or like when you've just woken up but you're still kind of dreaming, right. And I was in the bunk, in the lower bunk, lying down. And I looked down at my torso and I was covered in the spiders that were in the movie. Like hundreds of them just filling the bottom bunk. They were everywhere. And I freaked out and I went running into our parents' room, screaming and crying. And they had to calm me down and and they did. And my mom put me back to bed. And I think Derek slept through the whole thing because he would. I slept through and. Your screaming nightmare, you mean? I think so. I don't. I honestly don't remember, but you probably did. I don't remember any of this, so probably. <laughs> okay, yeah. So that's <laughs> fair. <laughs> and then I went back to sleep, and lo and behold, I had another nightmare, and I it was the same kind of like waking nightmare sort of situation where I could have sworn I had opened my eyes, and the 
and I was in the bottom bunk and I was covered head to toe. Every opening to the bottom of the bunk was covered in spider webs. And it was like I was being cocooned. And it was, again, horrific. And I woke up screaming and I went screaming to my mom and dad and they had to calm me down and put me back to bed and they did and that was fine. But from that moment on, one, I had a phobia that would stick with me for pretty much the rest of my life. Um, but two, uh, it would it would give me my first taste of how scary horror could really be. It's, it, it's not the scariest movie I've ever seen, but at, at seven years old, it was the scariest movie I'd ever seen. <laughs> and it was traumatizing. So does it, the the spider phobia persist to this day? It persists. It's not as bad as it was. I a few years ago, actually, oh my god, I think it's almost ten years ago now. I went to um, oh, that's a scary thought. I went to uh, Southeast Asia. I went backpacking for two months. And you guys do all this outdoor naturey stuff. <laughs> I just put me in a room with a TV. That's a, that's good enough for me. <laughs> Well, I did stay in like cities. Like I was in Bangkok for a lot of that. There was, you know, but um, one of the uh, one of the play one of the countries that I went to while I was there was uh, we were in Laos, and they have spiders that are as big as your face, um, and they make spider webs hanging across the trees in like openings, just kind of suspended like three feet above your head. Um, and I had to walk under a lot of those. So you, you learn to, you, it, it's kind of like, uh, what is it? Exposure therapy <laughs> or immersion right. therapy or something. And I came home from that and I was like, nothing can stop me. Now small spiders <laughs> scare me again. So like it's worn off, but. <laughs> you got to go back. Exactly. <laughs> is that one of the places where there's like spiders the sizes of dogs? Yeah, well, not not quite that big, but the spiders okay. that I was the spiders that I'm talking about eat birds. No, no, I don't. Yeah, like they're that. that big. Yeah, <laughs> like take both of your hands. If you take both of your hands, hands, and you hold them palms facing forward, thumb to thumb, that's, that's... the size of them. Uh, no. <laughs> now Graham has a racket. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> All right, Man, let's wow. uh, let's keep escalating this. This is fine. <laughs> uh, Derek, what's a three for you? Uh, so my entry for number three is the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> so the, the Blair Witch Project. Um, I I think I you know I I think this was still kind of high school time. Like I think I saw this around high school. Uh, I remember seeing the ads for it and not really being sure if it was like a documentary or not. They marketed it really well where they gave you just enough information that like you weren't paying attention. You might not, you might think that this is really based on a true story or it was some kind of a documentary because all of the advertising for the film just said like, you know, in 1990, whatever three amateur filmmakers went into the wood to find the, you know, the legendary Blair Witch. Uh, they were never found, but their footage was. It was the first, you know, from what I can remember, the first, like, found footage film, or at least the, the first of what we understand today. It was the breakout one. Yeah. It, it's, the, it's the one that coined the term, although arguably Cannibal Holocaust mm -hmm. is the first found footage film. Right, but that's right. A, But that's a very different story for another day. <laughs> and, and I think, like, by, if you're measuring budget against box office success, I think Blair Witch Project is one of the most successful films of all time. 
Uh, it's up there. Yeah. Top five, I think. Budget sure. of under 500,000, somewhere between two and 500,000. Uh, box office, it made almost, it made, you know, about 250 million. So super, super successful given that it was like, you know, again, as relatively unknown people putting it together. Uh, you know, no real kind of pedigree to any of, you know, directing, acting, like nobody really knew who anybody was. And it was, it, it looked and felt very amateur, very well done, like amateur in a good way. Um, and I remember kind of thinking, oh, that sounds cool, but really kind of not thinking anything of it. And then me and a few friends were at the mall uh, one day and we wanted to see a movie. And like the only movie that was playing was Blair Witch Project. And we were kind of like, whatever, we want to go see some movie about the, some people in the woods. Like, didn't really seem like the you know the thing to do, but whatever. We were in the mood to go see a movie. I don't don't remember exactly why. So we ended up, you know, the four of us in this little movie theater that had like pretty much no one else in it. It was late at night. It was like one of those ten thirty screenings, and we sat there scared shitless for <laughs> the duration. You know, it's a short film. It's like under an hour and a half. And as someone, you know, as Ariel just said, our dad was a, is a big outdoorsman. We, we go camping all the time. We go to, you know, we were in the woods all the time. You know, I, I could relate to the what you're seeing in the film, right? These people in the woods. There's not a lot of uh, scarier prospects than being lost in the woods and really not knowing how to find your way out. And, and our father it, it put that in us, that fear of getting, like, you always had to have a whistle on you. Yeah, very you neurotic, always had to have a compass. It was a very neurotic sort of Jewish uh, approach to the to that fear, right? Yeah. Very much, yes. A compass and a, and a whistle and, uh, you know, bring a sat phone. Just, <laughs> Not quite know, that far. We're, we're just we're just going, you know, walk around the block. Bring this hat phone. Come on, don't be stupid. <laughs> All the helicopter. But um, you know, I, I think Blair Witch Project is a is a fabulous horror film. Like I think mm-hmm. it it taps into, uh, I think some of like the most precise mechanisms for fear. And that's whenever I hear people say like, oh well, you know, you never find out what happens. Like when I hear that argument about most things where there's an ambiguous ending or things or there's a lot left unknown. Um, I, I usually uh, invite that person down to my cellar <laughs> um, <laughs> for an ambiguous yeah. ending. Blair Witch, yeah, <laughs> for an, exactly right. Blair Witch Project is one of those films, right? But I think one of the things that it also taught me, um, is sort of you know about the power of the fear of the unknown, right? This isn't exactly what you call cosmic horror, but I think it's kind of adjacent to it, right? The thing that's so terrifying about the Blair Witch Project is that you never see the monster. You never even know if it is a monster, right? These three people are wandering through the woods in making a documentary film, right? It's a film about a film. It's about these people making a documentary about the supposed like legend, you know, this myth, the Blair Witch, and wherever the fuck they are, Idaho or Ohio, one of those I.O. states, I can't remember, in the middle of nowhere. Um, (laughs) And they get lost in the woods. And then as they're lost in the woods, they lose their map. uh, So they don't know where they are. They start to kind of go a little nuts just by being lost. But then weird stuff starts to happen. They start hearing noises in the middle of the night. Sounds of like, sounds like children laughing, right? Two in the morning, you're in the middle of nowhere. There's no one around you for sure. We know this. But it sounds like baby crying, children laughing, rustling sounds, things like that. It's terrifying stuff because you never actually see outside the tent. You never see what's causing the sounds. As they go deeper into the woods, they find these symbols, these strange, clearly human crafted symbols that seem to represent something, you know, something supernatural, maybe not, we don't know. 
and then things just escalate from there. And it has this great final scene, right? This great climactic scene. But you never really learn anything. You never find out what any of it is. You never really find out the exact fate of anyone in the film. And it's all of that not finding out that I like to me, I mean, like that that is the that is fear. Like that the pinnacle of fear is is the unknown, right? It's the not knowing what for me, those kinds of movies where there is the ambiguous ending, those are the horror movies that stick with me a lot longer than the ones where it's sort of neatly wrapped up. Mm-hmm. 100%. So, 100%. Blair Witch, it's one of those movies where it had this this huge cultural impact when it came out, and everyone was like, this is the scariest movie ever. And then there was kind of a backlash to it. And now it seems like it's it's back in the the one of the scariest movies uh, timelines or whatever, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's back in that that uh, what people think of it. I saw it more recently, and I saw it at home, and and it was my first time watching it I, when I was a kid. I had the opposite experience of you guys. I was not allowed to watch anything scary, like even the X Files. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a long time before I finally saw it. And man, Blair Witch was even knowing a lot more going into it than, than you probably did, Derek, when you saw it, it was still really scary. And I don't understand the people who, who don't see it as a scary movie or can shrug it off or whatever. I think they're lying and they pissed themselves watching it. And they're afraid <laughs> to tell anyone. Uh, but uh, like, that was okay. <laughs> oh, no. Jesse, would you like to join me in the summer? <laughs> well, I still, I still think it's terrible. Like, I've probably seen it a few times, right? I've rewatched it and I've never found it like any less scary. Like I, I find it equally terrifying every time. Oh my God. He was so scared by Blair Witch. And that summer I had, uh, I was volunteering at my old nursery school. Um, and it was craft day and we were making crafts with popsicle sticks. Oh shit. And right. so I was like, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you, you're definitely bringing that up, right? Aren't you? Aren't you? You're not bringing, why aren't you bringing that up? Cause this, like he got scared. Scared. I this was a this was bad on my part though. I don't think I realized quite how scared no, he was. It was, it was good. It. it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but like, how many times Derek, have I terrorized you? I used to pretend I was uh, Bruce the shark under your feet playing yes, Jaws all the time. Yes, I am aware. You gave me my megalohydrothalassophobia, you dick. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, um, I made a figure out of popsicle sticks that was the same. That was like one of the ones that was hanging from the trees. And I came home and he was still out. I don't remember if you were like at a friend's place or if you were at camp or something. We were, te- we were young at the time though. Like we were young teenagers. And um, I came home and I put it on his pillow under his blanket and just didn't say anything. Yeah. Now I, I remember now I must've locked. That now you're <laughs> you ju- like you screamed. I remembered hearing you and mom was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And you like almost, I think you almost cried and I felt really bad. Don't tell I was like, that. Oh. <laughs> it's, <red. laughs> it's fine. You're a man. Men cry. It's fine. But like, it, it, I, I felt really, really bad afterwards. And then you were like, no, 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 that was good. And I'm like, yeah, you got to own it. Come on. But I don't, I didn't like that. I'd actually, I thought it would just like startle you. And then you, it really affected you. And I felt really bad. Well, I'm happy. Cause I know. Oh, okay. Well, if you're happy, now that I'm reminded that it happened, <laughs> you just blocked it out. Yeah. Yeah. You guys just have the best relationship and I'm a little jealous, but uh... <laughs> it wasn't always like this. Right. <laughs> uh, so what's, uh, what's your number three area? Yeah. 
Um, uh, continuing in chronological order, the first time I saw The Exorcist. And Derek, well, I, I'm hoping you remember how much that impacted me because I was up most of the night and I was a huge pain in the ass to pretty much everyone at home. Um, the Exorcist absolutely traumatized me. It is to this day the scariest movie I have ever seen. And a lot of people don't get that. It's the same thing with like, it's the same thing with people who say that like the Blair Witch Project isn't, um, isn't a scary movie and like, oh, it's boring and nothing happens. And they're just wandering around in the woods. Like I know people who have said that, you know, the exorcist is actually really funny and there's nothing scary about it. And I'm like, are you insane? Are you nuts? <laughs> I really, like, our cousin it's... Tammy doesn't find it scary, but yeah, no, when I first saw um, the exorcist for the first time, I was 13 years old, which was definitely too young. And it was after the the release you'd never seen like the recut had come out like relatively recently and everybody had been talking about it and um i was at my friend rachel's place and she was well off her family had a lot of money so she had like cable in her bedroom and everything and it was on like i think they had like all the specialty channels and everything so it was on one of the movie channels and we were like okay let's watch it and it scarred me like completely scarred me. I was not prepared. And the spider walk down the stairs, I, I literally could not look at our staircase for months. Like Oof. it was getting to bed was difficult. That's <laughs> like, that's one of the added scenes, right? With the, the stair yeah. walk. That's right. That I yeah. don't how do you cut that? That's one of the scariest parts. It's so unsettling. And that's why it was cut originally. It's 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 written into the book. And in the book, it's described even more horrifically than it was actually executed. And people were already, I think test audiences didn't react very well to it at the time because it was just too much. Even even at mm. the time, like it's it's like uh, the the myths that, you know, a woman had a miscarriage while watching Freaks, um, Todd Browning, uh, Todd Brown's right. movie. It's, you know, people had heart attacks watching The Exorcist and, you know, people died in the theater and all that stuff that's like marketing gold, even though most of it's not real. I think there's some, I think like there's a little bit of truth to some of that, right? Like some people kind of, you know, fainted or, or had, you know, heart palpitations. Yeah. There was ambulances a couple times, like little, little mm -hmm. things happen in theaters. But. Oh yeah. And like, we've seen that too. When we were at, when we saw raw at TIFF at midnight right. madness and somebody, and somebody fainted in the crowd, but it had nothing to do with the scene. It was likely just, it was late in the festival and the person was probably just over exhausted and fainted. Mm -hmm. And it was, and it was spun as, as this marketing thing as it's normally done. But yeah, so I, I saw this movie. I was way too young and I proceeded to spend the rest of the night sleeping with my light on the hallway light on and waking up crying like every five minutes like it scarred me even now like i've seen it a lot of times since i i own it on blu-ray it's in storage in toronto somewhere <laughs> just after this traumatic experience <laughs> then i did it five or six more times <laughs> <laughs> that was also my experience with martyrs i kept wanting to write about it so i watched it i've seen martyrs like seven or eight times and i've still never been able to write about it because it's just too much but uh yeah it just it stuck with me and I still to this day for, for my column on slash film, I, I'm going to write about, well, probably a few different things in that movie, including the crab walk. But I, I was going to write about it this week and it was so late at night and I was like, nope, nope, can't bring myself to look at her face. Nope. Can't do it. So that one it's has such a great stuck. movie. It really, it's, it's a great film. It's my, if we were yeah. doing a traditional top five, you know, if it was, this list was just our top like, five, top five horror, horror movies. movies, that would be my yeah. number one. Yeah. That would be my number wow. one. It would be up it, there for me. 
it seems like it might be one of those ones where it's like, uh, you know, Citizen Kane is the best movie ever. Do you ever feel like like maybe uh, it's too played out to say that? It's like it's the, the, the easy answer is to say The Exorcist or is it just like, screw that. It is the scariest. I don't care what anyone else says. I, I, I think it. Go ahead. You Anna. go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't care about what the, the discourse is about it. Like, especially with something like horror and fear, like, these are very personal feelings that we have towards these types of films, right? So either you're going to feel something when you see it or you're not. Um, and mm-hmm. there's never been a movie that I thought was was scarier and, and more well done in its evocation of fear than The Exorcist. And like, this is, we're talking 19, like this movie for 1973 is hardcore, hardcore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even by today's standards, there's stuff in that film that like you would not be likely to see in a movie well, that makes it into theater. Like, consider it's the same year, if I'm not mistaken, as, like, Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby was earlier, I think. Uh, not by much. I think it was 68. Was it? I think it was 68, if I remember correctly. Oh, maybe I'm messing that up. Whatever, they're five years I, apart. Whatever. They're, they're close enough, but they're, va- but they're worlds apart. Yeah, totally, totally. Rosemary's Baby has some, you know, is, is like, thematically hardcore i guess you could look at it that way but the exorcist like oh, shows sure. you a 12 year old girl bloodily forcing a metal crucifix into her vagina and and like this yeah. character says things like you know to a priest says things like stick it up her ass you fucking cocksucker like in 1973 <laughs> it's a the character's 12 years old like th- that there's really i can't really think of any film even since then that that has no taken those kinds of leaps like push those those kinds of boundaries and from what and- i understand the the direction, like the director of the film, uh, mm-hmm. what was it William Friedkin? Like he yeah. really went above and beyond, and you know how he pushed his stars. It's uh, he caused Ellen Burstyn to have a, a spinal problem that has lasted the rest. She of She had life. a fracture, yeah. yeah. When in the scene where she's in the bedroom, when she gets uh, yanked, pushed back yanked after, yeah, 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 when when Reagan smacks her and she flies into the back uh, into the wall because right. she was wearing a harness and they pulled her. And she landed so hard, it, it it cracked a vertebrae. Yeah, and she's had you know spinal problems ever since. Like this, this movie is hardcore to its audience, but it was made. You know, the the, the heart of the film is just as hardcore in terms of how it was made. Mm-hmm. You can. And it was also it. in this when Linda Blair is like being thrashed on the bed up and down, that caused irreparable uh, spinal damage to her as a child. So it also oh, like forced them to come up with new rules and guidelines for working with children on sets, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Like that's that's yeah. that's a horse of a different color. But <laughs> but in terms of like where we rank things and whether or not they're overhyped, it's it, all are like I mean I'm I'm I started out as a film critic, right? Like it, it's my bread and butter to give an educated uh, an educated opinion about why something is considered um, substantively good or bad and why. And I still say that all of that is still subjective. There is no objective truth about art in any field. And that also comes down to something as subjective and personal as horror, which is often overlooked because horror is deeply personal. I mean, just we're we're up to our three now. And all of our stories around our most influential moments with horror have been deeply personal. And that's just us. And we're 100% not alone on that front. All right, should we move on to number two on the list? Sure. Keep rolling. Um, so for my number, my number two is the only entry on my list that's actually not a film. Uh, it is, it's literature. 
And for this one, I'm kind of going with what I, it was is my overall kind of favorite horror person. I say person because the person I'm referring to is a bunch of things. He's an author. He's a filmmaker. He's a visual artist. Uh, and that person is Clive Barker. Um, and you know, there's, there's all kinds of different pieces of media I could have picked to discuss Barker, but I wanted to pick the one that I felt is, you know, is my favorite. And it's probably the one that most influenced the fact that he is my favorite horror creator. You know, I could have talked about Hellraiser or Candyman. Uh, but the, you know, my experience with Barker that was most influential was the first time I read his short story collection, The Books of Blood. Uh, it's a six volume collection. And I had never read such kind of vivid creative stuff in the horror genre. And that's what Clive Barker mm-hmm. is. I mean, he's a, a true imaginary like, or a true imaginer. That's the name of his book. of One of his books of, uh, of his artworks is called The Imaginer. Uh, I think that's what Barker has, you know, more than anything else. He's multi-talented. But the thing that he has better than just about anyone, you know, for my money, is imagination. He comes up with wild, wild shit in his imagination. But in the books of blood, you know, there's many great stories in in this book in this in this book of short stories. But the one that stands out the most, and you know, I you know, I can make the argument that maybe this is my favorite horror story in any in any medium, is a book called is a story called In the Hills, the City. And what this story is about, what these two these two men, this couple, these two British men that are traveling through Yugoslavia. This is written in the 80s, right? Well, when Yugoslavia was still Yugoslavia, before the war, before any of the genocides. And it's kind of boring. They've been having these lovers' quarrels. And at some point in their trip, they hear something. It sounds like thunder. It gets louder. It gets closer. They think maybe it sounds almost like gunfire. It's a cannon going off somewhere. And the earth starts to shake. And maybe what they're feeling is an earthquake. And then what they see is this kind of uncanny sight that, you know, could never be filmed, could never really be shown on screen. But it is almost like this tower-sized amalgam of human bodies moving and living. Uh, thousands of bodies roped together, holding onto one another, forming a human body, the shape of a human body that's several hundred feet tall. And the, the, what's, what's going on in the story is that there are these two towns in Yugoslavia that do this annual ritual where both towns, all of the citizens of the towns, except for, you know, the very old and the babies, they get together and form one body out of all the bodies in the town. They, they climb onto each other and form legs and a torso and arms and a head and they rest in place. They're tied together. Uh, and and they have some kind of a contest. It's never really described what the contest is because in this story, in this this year, this iteration of this contest, something goes wrong. The old organizer had died, and her daughter takes over and screws something up in the organizing of how they put all the bodies together. And so one of the two giant towns collapses, and almost everyone dies. And the other town, in its in, in the in the and a horrific event of seeing this other town collapse goes and runs amok. So this huge, you know, several hundred foot tower of living bodies is like rampaging through the fields of rural Yugoslavia. And these two British travelers like see this thing coming at them. And you might be thinking to yourself, this sounds fucking ridiculous. And <laughs> you would be right, except for that it's so well written. 
it's Clive Barker is such a good writer, especially in the early days, that he sells mm. it. He sells this story. It it sounds implausible, but it's just so well put together. And especially like there's this great climactic scene at the end where they they finally get like when, when earlier when they see the thing they don't get a clear look at it, but then later at night they they're like hiding in some little guy's cabin, and they they hear the pounding again, the thunder, and they look outside and they see it's in the dark, but they can see way down the way all of the stars and a certain chunk of the sky are blotted out because this shadow of a giant abomination is coming towards them and it sort of you know it steps on the house and a piece of debris kills one of the two tourists and the other one just in this moment of sheer i don't know hysteria grabs hold of it and actually incorporates himself into the amalgam of bodies and then that's the end of the story um yeah it's it's really incredible. I really love it. You'll never, hopefully, you'll never see it made into a film. I don't think it's filmable. I think it would be a huge mistake to try to show it on screen. Uh, it's also like there's so much stuff going in here, uh, going on in here, like thematically. Uh, it, it it's sort of like the scene where they actually see the thing and are confronted with it and are like rendered speechless. Uh, you know, it feels like they're seeing like a great old one or something like that, like a Lovecraftian mm-hmm. monster or Cthulhu mm-hmm. is like staring them down. It causes, there's another character in the story who like sees the thing and just kind of just falls and sort of just lays down to die. Like seeing this giant thing is, you know, is something you can't handle. It's like abject. Um, and Barker is like a genius at, at getting at the abject, right? At, at getting at the stuff that is so visceral and, and grotesque and when I say grotesque, I mean like not just gross and horrifying, but uncanny. Something that we recognize, but it's a twisted version of the thing that we think we know, right? It's uncanny in that sense. That's what the word grotesque really means. Uh, and that's what these that's what these towns made of bodies are. Uh, the, the sort of epitome of the grotesque. And Barker captures that beautifully. Uh, so, you know, maybe my favorite horror story of all time in any, in any genre, in any medium. That's pretty Jeez. creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys should read this. It's not a long story, you know, 25 pages. You could probably find it online. I, I, I had, you tell it well, too. Spellbound, well. the whole thing. Yeah. Good heavens. I've never read Barker, and I know that's not something I should admit, but I've, and it's like, he's, I mean, he's John's, he's one of my husband's favorite authors, too. So I, I should really get on that. <laughs> I mean, I've seen a lot of his movies, obviously. That's a different story. And I love his art. He is an exception. We actually have, a Barker a painting in our bedroom, but yeah, no, he's mm-hmm. shit. And like, you can see, <laughs> yeah. you can sort of see his imagination in all of his like big early work. Like if you, yes. you know, if you watch Hellraiser and you just look at like the design of the Cenobites, you can see like this guy's got a brain that just pulses with flavor and color. Like he, he's got lots of things that he wants to put on screen or on the page and, and he does it and he does it just about as well as you can. All right, well, we could we could zoom in on that forever, but we got to keep it rolling. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I need to segue just for my own mental well-being. <laughs> Ariel, Welcome Ariel, to what's Fun with the Fishers. Your... <laughs> oh, really? So my next is, again, still going in chronological order. It's actually a big one that ties in with Derek. Um, And it's the first time we ever went to a midnight. Well, the first time we ever went to a Midnight Madness screening together. And it was in 2006. And Derek had already been going at least one or two years uh, 
maybe more. I don't honestly remember exactly when you started, Derek, but um, you had been going before me with his friends. Um, and I was like, well, I want to come because I've always wanted to do what Derek was doing. I was, he's, he's my cool older brother. I always wanted to like play with the big kids. I wanted to do that stuff. And I want so the, I this, would like the record to show that I've been called cool. I think this is an official, <laughs> this is like official now. I have frequently called you cool to your face. I've written it down and I've said it on multiple podcasts. So don't worry. The record has stated multiple times. <laughs> as long as it says it on my tombstone. <laughs> Sister says I'm cool. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, uh, it was in 2006 and we saw Severance and it was the beginning of what would become a, a, a decade long tradition where every TIFF we would go and see at least one Midnight Madness movie together. Mm-hmm. And then he moved away to he moved to, to Texas uh, for school and we broke the streak. But it is oh. it's it, but it stays a tradition. It is still something that we try to do. Uh, whenever possible, which obviously we haven't been able to do in a little while because um, the world is the world. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I can't. I, I have a hard time imagining starting a movie at my home at midnight. What is it like going to a, a big theater filled with rowdy people at midnight to start a movie? Oh, it's awesome. Well, there's, there's nothing like it. It's a party. <laughs> it's it's a party. And it was this was my first uh, experience interacting with midnight screenings. But Midnight Madness wasn't like tiff's midnight madness program didn't originate the midnight movie like that started decades prior um in new york i think if i'm not mistaken uh on 42nd street i could be wrong but i'm 90 percent sure that's where it started um and other genre festivals have taken up that mantle and tiff was one of them although it's tiff is not a genre festival it is the single largest public uh public film festival in the world um with like over 300 films every year, which is absolutely gargantuan. But, you know, film festivals like um, Popcorn Frights in uh, Miami and Fantastic Fest in Austin or Fantasia in Montreal um, or Bifun in Korea, for example, they all have midnight screenings. And it's just kind of this tradition where that's where the rowdiness happens. That's where the party is. And it really is like a really special experience. You go and it's like the entire crowd knows that you don't need to make the rules clear. It's like as soon as the movie starts, if it's if the tone is right, everybody knows exactly how to interact with it. And interaction is welcome. So like the audience cheers, like when we went to see the loved ones at TIFF, for example, um, which is an Australian horror film. Absolutely amazing. Great film. I'm not remembering the filmmaker's name, but his follow-up was The Devil's Candy uh, with Ethan Embry, um, which was also awesome and a lot of fun. But The Loved Ones is particularly awesome. And there's a memorable scene at the very, like near the very end of the scene of the film where someone gets hit by a car. I'm going to say it that way so that, you know, if anybody (laughs) sees it who hasn't seen it, that they don't have the impact spoiled for them but the entire audience just goes oh like everybody screams and like all reacts together as if like you're all experiencing it at once and it's this really interesting experience and although it is that the beauty of midnight madness is also some of the pitfalls of midnight madness 
because the Q&As, as most Q&As are wont to be yeah. after the film, are painful, like nine times out of ten. And I'm sure Derek has like a million stories of these. And the one that <laughs> sticks out in my mind is when Rob Zombie and Sherry Moon Zombie were there for the Lords of Salem. Because um, somebody, the last question of the night was someone in the balcony at the Ryerson Theater. And he asks Rob, he says, hey, man, like, love your films. And he's like, thanks, dude. That's cool. And he's like, so, you know, we usually see, you know, you always put Sherry in your movies. And, like, we usually get to see her ass. But why don't we get to see any, like, full frontal? And uh, Sherry's yeah. on stage standing right next to him. And she is just trying to make herself as small as possible. She literally hid behind him. The entire audience started hissing at this guy. And like, we're not pleased. And it was, it, it wound up being the last question of the night, but zombie just without missing a beat, looks up into the balcony points. And at the same time says, because of fuckers like you. <laughs> and that's when Colin Gettys was like, that's all we have time for tonight, folks. Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, good evening. <laughs> and like, that was it. He wrapped it right up. And I, oh God, I just remember feeling for her so much. Cause like, it's, it's it's a beautiful experience going to Midnight Madness. And at the same time, like with any fan experience, it can be a little toxic. And like, but it's but it's a hell of a ride, regardless. Like it's an experience. Yeah, I uh I, I really hate QAs these days too. They're brutal. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I I was I almost sworn off of them after uh, a Cronenberg one where it's just like someone asked this long essay question that was more oh, about God. hearing his own voice. Yeah. Uh, and then I saw one where it was uh, Alex Garland. It was after uh, ex machina mm. and he would take the worst questions and spin them into gold. Like the answers were so good. I just sat there in awe of him. I was like, I didn't care what he said, but it was like, how did you do that? You took this, this crap that this guy asked you and made it amazing. So good for Alex Garland. Go watch his Q and A's if you can. There's, I, I am going to have to find it, but a friend of mine, Brian Collins was a moderator at fantastic fest for a, a panel and somebody said they had a question and they started talking about, I think their father's murder oh and then God. didn't follow it up and then didn't follow it up with a question. <laughs> and it was just, oh, okay. And it was, I think Nick Cage was on stage and for the, for the Q and I think it was, I, I don't even remember which movie it was, but it was recently. And without missing a beat, he was just like, okay, well, thanks for sharing that. Do we have another question? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably, that was probably color out of space, right? Probably. That's my guess. If it was recent, yeah. I don't think they did anything like that for jujitsu. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I don't think jujitsu got that much press. We're we going to number ones now? Number ones. Number one. So, my number one is, you know, pretty closely tied to Ariel's last entry, and mine is also. A midnight madness screening incident, or, or I should just say experience. Uh, so the reason why I chose this as number one, the movie I'm going to discuss is, you know, it's not my favorite movie. I think it's a pretty good movie. Uh, but it was more just, th this was as intense a film viewing and horror viewing experience that I think anyone could hope to have, just based on what we were seeing on screen and how the, this giant sold out audience was responding to it. So the film I'm talking about is Martyrs, which Ariel mentioned a couple times earlier. So Martyrs from 2008. They made a, an American remake, a bullshit remake. Don't bother with that, that stuff. Don't touch it. Yeah, don't worry about that stuff. So 
Martyrs is slotted into this little subgenre of horror that I think officially is called the New French Extremity. Uh, there, there's you know there's a handful of films that you know you know are considered part of this genre. Uh, I think the one, you know, the earlier one that that really put it on the map was High Tension, which also, you know, it it, it screened at Midnight Madness at TIFF. That was uh, early two thousand. I can't remember what year. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, the 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 great thing about this genre is that it's got all the gore. Right, New French Extremity is like very very gory stuff, but it's also like really really expertly crafted tension in all of these films. Like the, the tension is just dialed all the way up. It's cranked as high as it can go. They're usually pretty well acted. And overall, the story writing in these films is pretty good. And they, the focus from these directors that are part of this genre just really is just on like how to craft tension while still like doing a lot of gore and splatter stuff at the same time. And it usually makes for a pretty, you know, pretty good film viewing experiences. So Martyrs was 2008. I want to go back a year to 2007 so in 2007 at midnight madness the closing film was a film called inside which was one of these french new french extremity films Uh inside that one i went to with you that one we saw together that's right so inside got all this big press at tiff uh, at least among the midnight madness crowd all the write-ups were about it were like dude if you see a horror movie this year if you have an experience at tiff this is the one and this was, you know, Colin Geddes was the was the programmer at this time. You know, very very talented programmer. He knew how to spot great stuff. Uh, he had seen Inside at Con, and in his write ups about Inside, had said like it was just an absolute shit show, a party. These these con these people at Con who are like you know, just a lot of them are industry people, just went crazy over this film. It was so it's it's violent and wild and 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 just intense. The word is intense. It's as intense as it gets. And so when we get to the theater to see Inside this in 2007, Colin Geddes comes out and is just, he's, he's in the, you know, the mood of his life. He's bouncing around the stage. He's so excited that he's about to show 1,200 people this like wild ride of a gore festival about this mysterious woman stalking a nine months pregnant woman because presumably she wants to cut her baby out of her and keep it for herself. That's what the film's about. Uh, you know, and so you, you you decide how you build a film out of that, and the film viewing experience for for Inside was everything that the write up said it would be. Like the hype paid off; all the hype was real. So the following year, you know, we had all we loved it. Like I was talking about this movie for months. The following year, the same kind of write ups uh, we see the same kind of write ups for this movie in the same genre called Martyrs, and you know, sometimes you you start to see when when you see like write-ups repeating themselves in the same genre, you start to think like, okay, are we just getting kind of more of the same stuff? So I was like a little skeptical, but but excited all the same. And I'll never forget, we get in the theater and it's the same, you know, sold out Ryerson Theater, 1,200 people, Midnight Madness crowd, everyone, you know, you can feel the buzz. It's like a boxing match right before, right as the fighters are like taking to the arena, right? You can feel this energy. And Colin Geddes comes out onto the stage, everyone's clapping, going crazy. But I noticed something was a little bit interesting. Something seemed a little off. Colin Geddes, normally when he comes out to introduce a film, he comes out, he's like, welcome to TIFF Midnight Madness 2008. He's yelling, everyone's going crazy. Mm-hmm. But he was somber. He came out to introduce Martyrs, and he was in this somber. And he was just like, guys, I really don't know what to say about this film. Like, all I can say is that if you thought that you experienced something with Inside last year, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. 
and the crowd was kind of like clapping. A few people were clapping and were like, oh, okay. Uh, and then he just kind of let the film do the talking. And for those hundred and hundred or so minutes, however long it lasted, you could hear a fucking pin drop when there wasn't blood curdling screams happening in the film. Uh, you know, it's one of the most, like definitely the most intense horror film viewing experience I've ever had. For those of you who haven't seen Martyrs, it's about a girl, a young girl. First scene opens, this young girl's running down the street covered in blood. Clearly she's been abused. You know, we don't know what's happening. You kind of learn that she was the victim of like very serious abuse. She had been kidnapped at a young age and abused. We don't know why. And then the, the movie really starts once she's a young adult and has tracked down the people that kidnapped her and has gone to kill them with her friend, her and her best friend, both very traumatized, both similar victims, you know, similarly, these two friends are victims of abuse. Uh, and she does the job. Uh, this happens early in the film. She accomplishes her goal and she kills these people, this family of people that were her abusers. We still don't know why. Um, and it's really horrific and it's really violent, really well shot, really intense. Um, and then there's this kind of tonal shift that happens midway through the film. And what you think is a revenge film is actually way, 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 way darker. Uh, and it just descends into hell from there. Uh, and, you know, I won't spoil the rest for anyone who hasn't seen it. I, like I said, it's not my favorite movie. No. But it's the most intense. It's the most intense thing to see with other people, especially in like a big theater like that. Like this is Midnight Madness where everyone screams and goes crazy the whole movie. You could hear a fucking pin drop everyone was just terror horrified out of their mind but the quality of the film was good enough it wasn't like torture porn the way that some of these other films are and the other like even to add to all like this, it wasn't it wasn't hostile no like, like it, it had more it was more substantial than that um but to add to all this like the it was controversial even in the moment because normally the question and answer period at, at midnight madness is not very good people want to hear themselves speak for severance they asked where did you get the portable fridge that was in the coach bus oh right? yeah stupid question the, the question answer period for martyrs was hardcore people were like what the fuck is wrong with you why did you make this film? <laughs> like this movie really got people riled up it drummed up all this controversy uh and to this day you know i think it's it's as i've said like this is the most intense film viewing experience i ever had and so that's why it's number one for me it, it was also so intense that it literally ended the new French extremity. Like it, no one wanted to do anything after right. that. It, it was, it is considered the last entry into the film. Cause where do you into go? That genre. Well, exactly. Where do you go from there? And, and that was next down. Yeah. yeah. And that was the problem I say with air quotes like that. It's, you know, where, where do you go from there? That was why my editor and I bonded over this movie and the fact that he was deeply impressed that I could sit through it in one sitting I was actually shocked that I had. I, I refused to go and see it in the theater with Derek because I was like, I inside was fun, but it was also really scary. And I was like, if this makes if this makes inside look like Mickey Mouse, I don't think I can handle that in a theater. Yeah. And really like, violent. Legitimately. Like, both inside and murder really are, are violent. really violent. Like they're really, really, really grotesque films, blood, blood and gore wise and just the intensity of the violence. But Martyrs kind of uh, does, you know, gets sort of his head and shoulders above inside in that regard, too. Like it, there's some there's some scenes. There's a few scenes in Martyrs that are like utterly disgusting and, and horrifying. It's different, though. It's because inside is is violent. It's gory. It's bloody. But Martyrs is brutal. It is brutality more than anything. 
And that's the part, like it, it winds up being this, this really fascinating and hard to watch treatise on, you know, the notion of uh, like the grief that we carry and that we sometimes personify and how we deal with grief and guilt and uh, trauma. And on top of that, Mm -hmm. you know, our fixations on what's to come and the afterlife and you know, the lengths that people will go to, the horrible, terrifying lengths that human beings will go to, to find out what's next, mm. regardless I, of the cost. And I think we're seeing better takes on that now than we did back then. Like, I think the new French extremity actually wasn't that well equipped to deal with some of those themes because it sort of went too far into the violence without exploring things with more substance. Whereas like, when it comes to like grief and horror, we're seeing some stuff for, from like people like Ari Aster with, you know, Hereditary and uh, Midsommar yeah. that like really explore like the connection between you know, horror or terror and, and things like grief. Yeah. And those but, are also but not with different. the same, but not with the same, maybe visceralness is the wrong word, no, but not with the same. Well, but both, visceralness like, is like, and that's an adequate, like that's a, I think that's an appropriate choice of words because martyrs is visceral. It's very visceral. Mm. There really isn't much that you can compare martyrs to. Martyrs is one of the only films that if anybody's ever said like, like people who have asked me, you know, could I handle martyrs? Should I watch martyrs? It's one of the only movies where I'd be like, no, don't fucking touch that. Like, don't, don't go near it. Because like there are, you know, some people I'll just be like, oh, you should watch this or you should watch this. Are you OK with body horror? Cool. Try this. This will be fun. Uh, this might be right up your alley or this is really funny. You know, try Tucker and Dale versus evil. Why not? It's a it's a riot. <laughs> but like yeah. different, very, very different. And I there are very few people I have ever recommended martyrs to. And for the most part, I've steered people away from it. I tell everyone to watch it. Kids. Nope. All right. Well, in the uh, you know, in the spirit of maxing things out, I guess Ariel, that just leaves you with your number one, uh, presumably not as visceral. No, my number one is actually really nice. Um, <laughs> it's a little sad, but it's nice um, and led to something really happy. You guys know what it is. So me, all the things I'm saying are probably just confusing you. Um, <laughs> so my my number one most memorable horror experience was meeting my husband on the set of a horror movie. Um, we were both doing a set visit each for different publications. I was doing a visit for Fangoria. Um, at the time I was already working as, as a freelancer for Fangoria as their Canadian correspondent for set visits and stuff. And he was there for Dread Central where he was the managing editor and soon to become the editor in chief. Um, and the sad part of it is that, uh, my aunt had just passed away the day before. Um, and that does actually tie in. Uh, I was actually, I was, I was in another relationship at the time. I was, I was still with my ex and we had been up at this cottage with my mom and my stepdad and, uh, my aunt got worse while we were up there and my mom and stepdad came back into Toronto And while they were there and we were still, my ex and I were still at this cottage, she passed away. And the next day I had to, I had to drive us back into Toronto so I could drop him off at home. We were living together and then drive myself out to Hamilton to go to the set visit. And I didn't really give myself time to grieve. I didn't have the time. I had to stay focused because once I got 
sad. That was it. Like I just, okay, I need to just sit with the, mm. with the grief right now. Like we were close. Claudia was close. Like she was a very key cog in our entire family. So her losing her hit all of us very hard. Um, and I held it together relatively well, but we were on that set for 14 hours. <laughs> they they kept us and used us in the movie as extras. And my husband and I are actually in the background in one scene. Uh, but we were supposed to be doused in blood. It was going to be this whole to-do and it didn't wind up really working. And it, it's, a, it's a long story. But um, I was focused most of the time. I, I you know, I, I, I arrived a little early. There were a couple of other journalists there. And I sit down at the table. There's a big round table where all the extras are too. And, uh, you know, that was the journalist's table. And then John walks in with the rest of the journalists. They had all hitched a ride together. And he ma- he locks eyes with me and walks around the table and immediately sits down in the chair directly next to me, despite there being other chairs available. So my first thought of who would become my husband was, who is this creep and what does he want? <laughs> Just right off the hop. Um, but... He was actually really sweet and completely took me by surprise and disarmed me and was telling jokes the whole time and was trying to make sure that nobody felt awkward or shy. And he trying tried to engage all of us in playing, you know, the the movie game where you pull out IMDb and in the section under an actor or a director or whoever, where it says the four movies they're or the four things they're most known for, you try and guess what those are as a team, like as a group, you just kind of shout them off and see if you can get them. So it's very participatory. And he played that with us for like hours because it was a hurry up and wait situation. And then as the day wore on and I started to get more tired and the grief started to hit, I was having a harder time keeping like saving face. And then they were like, oh yeah, we have a, we have a hot tub at our Airbnb. You should come back and and hang with us later. I was like, no, I have to go back uh, like first thing. And they're like, oh, it's okay. We all have flights in the morning. I was like, no, I have to go to a funeral. And I had to explain. And so I explained. And from that moment on, it was like, okay, you've acknowledged it. Now the floodgates are open. And I was having a very hard time keeping it together. And John made it his job to keep me distracted and to keep me smiling and to make me laugh. And he told me jokes And if there was ever a moment where I was breaking and I needed to be distracted, I'd just like tap him on the shoulder and just say, tell me a joke. And without hesitating, he would just jump into it and just tell me a joke. And we had this kind of immediate connection and it totally threw me because I was in the middle of feeling so many different things. And at one point it was like two o'clock in the morning and I just couldn't, I was so exhausted and I just cracked and I had to go outside and cry. And John followed me and was like, can I give you a hug? I'm like, no, don't touch me. Don't, I, you can't, you can't touch me. Cause I was like, no, I'm getting this energy from you. And I don't, I don't <laughs> Nope, this isn't yeah. right now. And then our friend Crystal, who was there with us as one of the other journalists. And we, we just met her that night too, but she's going to be one of my bridesmaids when we do finally have our like big ceremony. Uh, she was like, can I hug you? I'm like, yes, no, you're fine. Come here. Give me a hug. <laughs> like, And that's just the way it went. And it was this, the beginning of it, it happened on a horror on the set of a horror movie Um, and nothing happened for a long time. Well, a few months and then decisions were made and things were ended and the rest, as they say, is history. (laughs) 
So not as nearly as traumatic a story as the rest <laughs> of these have been. Right, yeah. So you're like the two number ones. So on the one hand, there's martyrs. And on the other hand, there's this adorable meat cute. <laughs> right? Is that it? And it ended with something happy. Meat, something meat nice. Meat cute spelt M-E-A-T. Ah. Can you, can you, say, so can you say what movie it was that, that you were on the set of? Um, it was the remake of uh, David Cronenberg's Rabbit. Oh, okay. Right over my head. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, yeah, a great, great one to end on, I think, because we definitely hit some, uh, like, woof. That's, uh, <laughs> can, cannot stress enough, Geek Top 5's official position is be very careful with inside and, yeah, take a pass on martyrs. I say, I say, yeah. I say don't take a pass on martyrs, but that's just me. You can tell the difference yes. between the siblings now because I'm the one who's like, no, this will hurt you. And Derek's like the one, yes, get hurt. <laughs> All right. Well, if folks want more recommendations from you, I mean, I know, Ariel, you've got probably got a few things you'd like to plug if, if they want to check out like stuff that's been blogged or just more of your, you know, should I go see this or not? Where they, where can they find your stuff? <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AFIS8, A-F-I-S-8. And you can find me on TikTok at AFIS period eight because somebody else had taken aphis 8 i was very mad um but uh, not really but otherwise uh if you're looking for some great horror stuff to read i highly recommend you subscribe to fangoria if you go to fangoria.com uh there are and go into the shop there are all the subscription options many different types to work with your budget and on the at the same time they we are still currently having a 25 percent off sale on annual subscriptions so if there was ever a good time to do it now would be the time and our next issue is coming out in October. So it is our Halloween issue and Halloween kills is the subscribers exclusive cover. So if that's what you want, I say you should definitely be subscribing two thumbs way, way up from this guy right here. Otherwise check out everything on slash film slash film.com. And I have my weekly column there with Matt Donato, uh, where we discuss the scariest scenes ever from horror movies. Um, and we alternate which we pick each week and there's a new one every week. This week I did the ring. And that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all about the little pause, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's the other movie that terrified me. And Derek's to blame for that one because he used to put on the TV to a dead channel just to scare the shit out of me to get me to stop using the shared family computer. <laughs> <laughs> we're very nice. Fair, you know, we're very nice to each other now. Well, yeah, now. Yeah, you, you found a way to adapt. I get that. Uh, <laughs> Derek, was there anything you wanted to pitch? Like anything of yours or just any oh, recommendations? Yeah. Um, I, well, so like if you want to find me, uh, my address is... To, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, you can find me online. <laughs> at, like I have a website. It's DerekAFisher.com. D-E-R-E-K-A, like the letter A, and Fisher, F-I-S-T-R.com. You know, just kind of like my writer website. You find, you know, the stuff I've published is all you, you can find there. Links are there. A lot of like flash fiction on the website. Rad. Okay. Well, both of you guys, thanks so much for, for all of that. I know I've got a list of things I got to check out, but uh, yeah, it's a blast having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. We enjoyed Thanks for having there. us. 
While we're giving out thanks, uh, also always want to mention to thank Oliver Wickham, the guy behind our theme song. Uh, be sure to check him out on Spotify. He's a music producer. He's done a ton of really cool stuff. It's worth your listen. And finally, as always, we want to thank you. We know we've gotten we've gotten some pretty specific feedback with regards to some of our more horror-themed episodes. We know yeah. there's a cadre out of you out there in the community who are really into it. Uh, so hope this is leaning in to exactly what you want. But if you had questions, Questions, comments, concerns, or just other things you can't believe weren't on these lists, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, Graham, what's the what's the contact information they can use to get that to us? Please email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5, and we're on Twitter at geektop5. You can also leave comments on our website, geektop5.com, and please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Those ratings and reviews, by the way, super helpful for us, um, useful metrics to figure out where we're being listened to and how, um, really helps us narrow down and get you exactly what you want. So please don't spare the spare ribs when it comes to those. Otherwise, uh, everything running fr- from Jaws to the Blair Witch Project to Inside and maybe Martyrs if you've got an iron cast stomach, um, plenty of stuff there to keep you busy until we get a chance to do this again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>